This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country and actually my lounge room. And I, the audio quality isn't as good as usual, or if my version of Buster Bindi starts barking, apologies. Well, that's interesting because if Bindi starts barking, Buster will start barking. I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast, joining you from the Gadigal land on the Aora Nation. And we're going to be joined in our various lounge rooms by Jackie Maley. Jacqueline Maley is a columnist and senior writer at the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age. And she's going to talk about the crisis in Afghanistan as uh, our government and other countries around the world race to evacuate people from the Kabul airport there. It's a chaotic and dangerous place to be right now. But first, this week, there's been... Political conflict in Canberra and theatre, it should be said, around COVID-19, in particular around the national plan to open up when we hit 70 or 80% vaccination rates. And PK, Scott Morrison seems to be gaining some traction on this with his narrative that's all about hope. It sounds like this. Because we have to deal with it. Otherwise, we stay in the cave forever. And that's not a sustainable solution. And so at some point, and we have nominated what that point is, we must go to the next level. Going to the next level and get out, in the, out of the cave, PK. This, uh, it's a change in narrative uh, that we've seen building from the Prime Minister over the last couple of weeks. I've got to say it appears to be working for Scott Morrison in the polls. You know, he's presenting himself as the man with the plan. That in itself is an interesting spin because this is actually a plan from the National Cabinet, not a plan from the Federal Government. But he's the man with the plan. And as I say, the polls are picking up for the Prime Minister. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all, Fran. I'm not surprised it's working for Scott Morrison because we've been in this thing for so long. People, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, have gone, okay, we have to go and get vaccinated and then we need to get out of this. So I think there is a view that we need to to be able to, you know, see the exit door, right? We, we, we can see the fire escape. So as more and more of us do the right thing, get vaccinated. Um, I think the Prime Minister promising that, that that there's an end to this is something that is really appealing to people because it provides an incentive for the pain. Now, obviously, there's some issues around that, and I think we've, we've seen Labor raise those, uh, particularly around what the 70% and the 80% vaccination rates actually do trigger. The fact that children aren't included in those rates has become a big issue. And of course, um, the National Cabinet will meet on Friday. We're recording this on a Thursday to try and resolve that. But then, of course, younger people than 12 are also, you know, getting getting this strain. So that's going to be an ongoing issue for the Prime Minister too, the anxiety around all of that. But I do think that the Prime Minister kind of got, got on the front foot on this this week. Some of the language, the caves and the, you know, it sounded a bit like his previous line, remember, Fran, the, the doona that we were hiding under. I wasn't 
I wasn't really overwhelmed with with love for the Croods reference and all of this sort of, you know, cave people business. But really what he's trying to establish is a sense that we cannot continue to live like this. And I think people are sympathetic with that because it is a pretty difficult proposition to have kids out of school for this long, uh, particularly in the two big states, obviously, where this is really acute, to to have businesses stopped from functioning, people out of work. Like It's, it's not a long-term plan. So if we're looking over at Europe and other places and saying, hang on a minute, you know, that they're moving to the next phase, why aren't we? The Prime Minister offers that version. But I do feel, I just want to say this, and I'd love to hear what you think, Fran, that perhaps Labor in questioning some of the detail of the plan, which I I think is a reasonable thing to do for an opposition, may have surrendered some of the ground. Uh, The Prime Minister was able to paint them as maybe pro-lockdown or, you know, trying to poo-poo the plan. And I don't know how helpful that was for them. Yeah, well, I mean, let's be honest here. The obvious thing is it's easier to be a merchant of hope than a merchant of fear. And the Prime Minister's trying to paint Anthony Albanese as a merchant of fear or a merchant of of doom and gloom because he dares to question, you know, the national plan. Now, Labor actually supports the national roadmap out and Anthony Albanese has always done that. Um, But within that, like any opposition, they're trying to find a chink to attack the government. And there is plenty to question, at least, if not attack the Prime Minister and over this talk of the the national plan and this message of hope and a new day is dawning and there's always, what is it, dark before dawn and getting out of the cave because there are some some hiccups and some hurdles that could get in the way of that emergence from the so-called cave. Like you said, you know, what about kids? This 80% target actually is only 67% of the general population unless you count in that 80%. You start to add to that the number of kids, over 16-year-olds at least, um, and that will, of course, then lift the number that need to be vaccinated before we hit 80%. Some are pushing for that. Then there's the question of are our hospitals ready? Are they prepared for a surge in infection rates, not to mention deaths that will occur when we open up? Uh, the economy, when we hit that 80%, there'll still be many, many people, many thousands, millions of people who won't be vaccinated. Um, so what impact is that going to be out of our hospitals? What's the leadership there in terms of, you know, better resourcing and equipping our hospitals? The AMA are calling for that. And the schools, of course, every every political leader, they'd have to be dumb, deaf and blind and really tone deaf if they didn't realise that this pressure on families of homeschooling is which is one of the biggest bugbears and the the most the, the most anger anger provoking elements of this they all want to get kids back to schools that's a priority for state and territory governments so what's the gov- federal government doing there to lead that um, should teachers be vaccinated should that be mandatory should they be vaccinated at least on a mandatory basis in primary schools where we don't have a vaccine yet are they leading on getting better ventilation in our classrooms are kids and teachers going to have to wear masks all of that preparation work the prime minister's not going into that difficult sort of nitty-gritty detail he's got a, a, a headline message to sell a big picture to sell which is about hope the man with the plan offering and selling hope, that's very hard for any opposition leader, really, to try and um, pick holes in. Yeah, I mean, and but but having said that, he needs to pick holes, right? Particularly when, like, let's let's look at some of the detail of the Delta, mo- um, the Delta modelling, the Doherty modelling, <laughs> but really, uh, Delta is key here. But but the Doherty modelling doesn't say that when you get to seventy percent of the population. Uh, vaccinated, you never have lockdowns. And yet, if you listen to the language of the Prime Minister, it certainly implies that, doesn't it? <laughs> so some of the hope 
is based on, I think, unrealistic expectations. And if you're yeah. giving unrealistic expectations, yes, you might be selling hope, but you don't want to sell uh, false hope. And no, because the public will be quick to jump on that. And, and you're right, PK, it's, it, at 70%, it certainly doesn't recommend the end of lockdowns. Even at 80%, the Doherty plan um, still suggests that there would be, um, you know, focused, could be, could be focused lockdowns, short, sharp, focused lockdowns. So rather than statewide or citywide, that the lockdown would still be uh, uh, um, one of the tools in the toolkit. Um, but you're right, the Prime Minister is making little mention of that. Yeah, that's right. I actually spoke to the Finance Minister, Simon Birmingham, and I thought he was the only frontbencher that I've heard as honest about what the future looks like. We, he still talked about the national plan, its importance, but he, he conceded, yeah, there, there would be targeted lockdowns um, when when necessary, but within the, the spirit of the Doherty um, modelling, even after 70%, uh, he said... Uh, in relation to those comments that the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, made that, you know, states can't lock down and expect the federal government to bankroll that. Well, he said, you know, we're not going to walk away from people. And I thought that was really interesting, particularly Mm. from the fact that he's a South Australian, right? And I think that's interesting because it's the Liberal government in South Australia that's been short, sharp lockdown crazy to try and suppress this virus. And it does demonstrate that, you know, look at the skyrocketing numbers in New South Wales. Even with this national plan, do you really think South Australia is going to be enthusiastic about opening uh, its domestic borders to New South Wales when that critical, uh, you know, vaccination rates achieved? I'm not sure. And that's where it's going to get tricky. It's, it's going to be very, very challenging to then open up and, and, and let it so-called rip. Uh, they're really going to want to make sure that all of their systems are prepared. And given they've been in such a really radical suppression, eradication kind of model in some of those states and territories, I'm talking WA, Queensland, uh, South Australia, yeah, that might say in writing this is what we're going to do, but to go from zero to opening up at a, at a large scale because that's what happens when you kind of you know, look at this this infectious strain, even with high rates of vaccination, I think that's going to be a really hard thing to execute. Well, I guess the thing is what we've learnt from this pandemic is you need to be nimble, you need to be prepared to pivot and uh, the PM's been doing a lot of that in the recent just month alone. I'll come back to that. Um, and I, I think we also need to be careful when we, you know, the, the let it rip scenario. If you actually drill down into the Doherty models, it's not about letting it rip. It's 80% of the population. And as I say, I think they're going to have to probably pivot on that and broaden that out to include certainly over 16-year-olds probably. Um, but it's with it's with other measures. It's with social distancing. It's ma- maybe even with masks outdoors possibly. You know, it's restaurants having fewer tables in them, those kind of things. Sharon Lewin said... Uh, yesterday that ventilation really is very important as part of this plan. So it's not a let it rip scenario. It's not as simple as that message of hope the PM is trying to sell. And we will become acutely aware of that as it happens because there will be a lot of pivoting going on. And just as I mentioned there, the Prime Minister doing a lot of swivelling around on this. On the language, PK, you know, got to come out from under the doona. That was a message, what, a year or so ago. Uh, Then we had lockdowns. The government was very critical, federal government, very critical of Victorian lockdowns last year in the end, thought they were sort of going too hard. But then the Prime Minister was convinced we needed lockdowns to get rid of it. And just in the last couple of weeks, the Prime Minister said, 
you know, it's not vaccinations that are going to get us out of this. It's short, sharp lockdowns. And now the message is very much vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of toing and froing. Maybe it can be forgiven under the, just the general heading that in a pandemic, change happens quickly. It happens constantly. And uh, any responsive government needs to be able to pivot quickly too. But we certainly have seen, been seeing a lot of change of language from this Prime Minister. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he became a fan of short, sharp lockdowns. And look, he hasn't said he's not, to be fair to him. But now it's, it's you know, stop being cavemen. I, I spoke to Andrew Bragg, a Liberal uh, senator from New South Wales, and he said, you know, we've, we're going to become the hermit kingdom. So, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're really trying to drill home this idea that we cannot live in this kind of island, uh, false economy, false separation from the rest of the world forever. And I think they, they are right. Well, they are but right, PK, but, but, you know, neither can we do anything till more of us are vaccinated. So, yes, I mean, it sort of stands to reason that when we're vaccinated, then more of us are going to feel safe and good and anxious and keen to open up. But right now we're a long way from that. We're nowhere near 70% or 80% for, yeah. of the population being, you know, fully vaccinated. And, so And that... And that's on the federal government again, right? And we know that. And we know that the public sees it that way. And that's the real weakness. Now, you interviewed the Education Minister, Alan Tudge. As a mum, I was listening to that interview very carefully, not just as a journo, about what is the plan for return to schools. So much education missed, as we were saying uh, in last week's podcast. And I thought it was really instructive that he's, you know, it was, again, the headline stuff. When we get to 70% vaccination, you know, that's... Well, that's some time off, you know, yeah. which you pointed out to him. So New South Wales and Victorian students, that's some way away. Now, if if you had enough supply, wouldn't you be doing mass vaccinations, you'd hope, of 12 to 18-year-olds, you know, that school cohort immediately? I'd hope so. But you don't have enough supply. So we can't do that and therefore we cannot get them back to school uh, and then, of course, their educators may not have had the opportunity to get uh, vaccinated as well. They don't have the ventilation systems. I just feel like, you know, it's a good message of hope. And yet on the ground here, those of us living in the trenches, we know that this is all some time away. And I think that's going to that's gonna hurt the government. Yeah, that's a bit hard to bear. Shall we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Jacqueline Maley, columnist and senior writer at the Sydney Morning Herald on The Age. Welcome to The Party Room. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, Jacqueline, we were discussing earlier, PK and I, the question being raised by Labor uh, around children under 16 not being included in those 80%, 70-80% vaccine rollout targets. Now, the Doherty Institute modelling uh, doesn't include them. It only looks at what happens when you vaccinate people over, uh, over that age. Um, and that doesn't take into account, of course, a big chunk of the population, but it also doesn't take into account a chunk of people who are testing positive to COVID, as children are. So if we opened up without kids being vaccinated, once people see their kids getting sick, I don't know that that 80% vaccination target, as it currently is, is going to fly anymore, is it? I mean, the Prime Minister has now told us that kids over 12 will be vaccinated before the end of the year. Should this cohort at least be counted in the 80% target? Look, I think so, if the government wants to be totally transparent and sort of non-tricky about the figures, because 
Um, look, I mean, one of the things about COVID is there's been a sort of blizzard of figures coming at us the whole time. And now the figure that we're hearing over and over again is, you know, 70%, 80% will get some freedoms. But as, you, as you're pointing out and as people are about to, you know, are, are about to discover, that leaves children vulnerable to catching the virus and for it to be circulating in schools and schools to be shut down and even for children to be hospitalised with this. Um, so, yeah, I think people are in for a bit of a shock with it. Um, and this is going to be the next front, I think, in the sort of COVID wars because there will be people who want their, you know, we're already seeing articles in the newspapers focusing heavily on the enormous sort of social and psychological and educational toll that this is having, that lockdowns are having on children not being able to go to school. Um, there's a hell of a lot of parents out there who are very stressed out trying to work at home and homeschool. Um, you know, I have some personal experience with that, um, who would like to see their children go back to school. Those parents would probably say, you know, any risks that they take on, you know, it's a risk assessment that every family has to do on its own and, you know, balance up the risk versus the reward of them going back to school. And there'll be others, other people who just don't, you know, don't want to put their children in danger at all and will want and will demand their children to be vaccinated. And then you have, of course, lobby groups like teachers who will be like, well, you know, um, it's a very difficult thing to sort of mandate um, teachers, particularly in the public system, to have the vaccination. Um, and if they're going into schools unprotected, um, then, you know, there's going to be a bit, bit of a battle between state governments and teachers unions. Yeah, Jackie, that is a really good point. You know, and I know there are issues around um, compulsory vaccination, which we've been talking about every day on our shows, but also in this podcast. But it is a really, really interesting question. How can you have children in a classroom that don't have a vaccine available to them, but um, allow teachers to be in that classroom who choose not to get vaccinated. I mean, that's pretty unfair to the, to the kids that don't have that option available to them and to those families. This is the kind of conundrum, is it not? It, it really is. And, you know, this is, this is sort of a, a small illustration of the whole conundrum of COVID writ large, which is, you know, the sort of personal liberties of the individual um, versus, uh, you know, the good of the whole. And the good of the whole isn't always um, clear. And people will always sort of cry out about what they think are in, infringements on their personal liberties. And this is why, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people have sympathy for many governments and many sort of political leaders at this point. But I do think, you know, the complexities of the situation and, and the, the risks and the rewards that they're, that they're weighing up and what, what they're imposing upon people um, versus, you know, by telling them that, you know, this, it'll all come good in the end and this is what we've all got to do and we've all got to stick together because it's going to be best for everyone in the end. It's just an impossible sort of equation. Um, and I think we all see that in our personal lives. And, you know, if you're a political leader trying to navigate all the different interests, um, it, it's, in, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I, I went out to southwest Sydney yesterday and went to some vaccination clinics and just sort of tried to see how it's working out there. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of different attitudes towards vaccination within the different communities. Um, but one thing, one strong thing that came through was how much everybody didn't want to have AstraZeneca and they wanted to have Pfizer. And there's a feeling like, you know, if AstraZeneca is the one that's sort of widely available, why are they sort of dumping it on us because no one else wants it? Um, why should we get the second rate vaccine? 
Um, and also there's a lot of people who are like, we're doing this because the government's forcing us to. You know, we know that we know that um, if we don't do it, then we won't be able to work. We won't be able to send our children to childcare. We might not be able to go to a restaurant. Um, we won't be able to see our relatives. So there's a feeling sort of, you know, of government compulsion, which I think in other communities, you know, there's less of an attitude towards that. It's like, um, you know, people sort of think it's the right thing to do for their health. But, you know... Yeah, but, th- that, a- but those communities are being compelled to. I mean, they're in strict lockdown and they can't leave those areas and go to work unless they're vaccinated. So there is a... that You know, sure, it's not mandatory, but there is some compulsion around it if you want to earn oh. a living, isn't there? It's a different Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And we drove around, you know, the streets of Lacambra and Auburn and Belmore and, you know, all of those streets yesterday and there's not a soul on the street. Um, there's a lot of police and there's police checking that, you know, people are staying in their houses and, you know, ostensibly they get one hour of exercise a day. Well, mm. there's not a lot of parks in that, in that area. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of children cooped up in very small apartments with no green space to walk to and have a play. So... Mm. You know, it, it is a pretty dire situation um, out there and the police presence is strong. And we spoke to some cops and um, army personnel and they were very, you know, they're very nice and they're just doing their job. But it's certainly resented on the streets that, um, you know, there's helicopters at times that are that are hovering over them, making sure that yeah. no one's gathering on the streets. It's pretty full on. It's a yeah, different it's... situation than the one I'm in where I live in a different part of Sydney. Do you think it's maybe it's that resentment that Labor's trying to tap into in a sense when it's trying to sort of run, we were speaking earlier of Labor trying to run the dual line of supporting the national plan, but also trying to raise issues with it and raise the sort of sense that this government won't do it properly. I mean, that's the theme from Anthony Albanese we've seen all week in the parliament uh, when he kicked off question time with this uh, issue of, you know, you've got two jobs. Let's have a listen. Yeah. Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? The Prime Minister has the call. Well, Mr Speaker, I thank the member for his question because he's made this reference once more, implying the Prime Minister of this country only has two jobs, Mr Speaker. And as I said before, anyone who thinks the Prime Minister of this country only has two jobs isn't up to the job, Mr Speaker. Now, that line, uh, Scott Morrison is trying to show. <laughs> he's trying to show how political and narrow-minded he, this is. This is how he's trying to present Anthony Albanese. But I think it's kind of dumb for Scott Morrison to say that, isn't it? Nobody actually took it literally. Only two jobs, and then you're finished for the day. It wasn't a literal statement. It's a political <laughs> statement that they're the most important jobs right now, right? Yeah, I think I think it's a fairly flimsy defence, um, and and it also sort of overlooks the fact that you know more broadly, I suppose Scott Morrison didn't have a huge agenda, and he didn't have a sort of great ideas for reform or whatever when he came into power. He's been hit with this enormous, you know, um, sort of global crisis. So in a sense, yeah, I mean that's his job right now is to I sort mean, of manage it. I mean, he told us and, at the start of the year, Jackie, at the National Press Club lunch, that his his one job would be to get the vaccination rollout right. Yeah, and I don't think... um, I think, you know, you could probably say broadly in Australia um, everybody is thinking, you know... As soon as we get this job done, then we can get on to you know other sort of secondary jobs. But this is this is absolutely the paramount part task for the for the national leadership at the moment, which is to yeah uh, sort out the vaccine rollout and um, you know end lockdown so we can get the economy back on track and ease people's 
burdens. Well, the, the Prime Minister, of course, does have another very important job at the moment. Of course he does, and that's around the crisis unfolding in Afghanistan. The Prime Minister said out loud this week what everybody knew, which is we can't stay there, our troops can't stay there trying to evacuate citizens and, and Afghans without the Americans being there. We are essentially at the mercy of the US and their timeline, and we'll have to get out before they do. So, you know, the, the pressure is on. The government's clamouring to evacuate more people before this end of August deadline, which is, you know, no days away now, almost. But there's been some awful um, bureaucratic bungles, it would seem, at our end, which have potentially life and death consequences for some people there at the Kabul airport trying to get out. You know, we're not in control and we perhaps weren't uh, and aren't being as effective and as organised as we need to be. And it goes to this whole issue again of why didn't we move sooner? Yeah, this is what I sort of can't fathom. You know, God knows I'm not an expert on Afghanistan, but it was no secret that the US was going to withdraw from Afghanistan. And it wasn't even a, you know, a pre President Trump policy. It was something that Obama announced um, in his presidency. So we've had literally years to prepare for this moment. Um, the US didn't keep it a secret, um, you know, when they were going to withdraw and the timing of their withdrawal. It just, you know, it does go to Anthony Albanese's criticism of the government, which is, you know, that they're, they're reactive and they're, you know, and they're, they're slow and they don't get ahead of a problem and they haven't strategised it because it is very, very hard to understand why we can't have been slowly pulling people out, um, mm. you know, months, even, you know, up to a year ago and also processing people's visas. There just seems to be a huge scramble now within home affairs. Um, we're sort of trying to respond to this crisis situation just in terms of processing people on the bureaucratic side. And then on the other side, you've got just the logistical challenge of getting people out of the hellhole that Kabul Airport has become. And that's sort of, that's a defence matter. Um, and, you know, as you say, it's, it's, we're sort of completely in the hands of the Americans there. and Their priority is going to be getting their own people out. So we're always mm. going to be second, second at the queue in, in the queue at best. Defence Minister Peter Dutton has defended the sort of the pace of the processing of some of these visa applications, suggesting that some could pose a security threat. Uh, the PM says he won't budge on his stance to refuse pathways to citizenship for, for Afghan asylum seekers who arrived here by boat here on temporary protection visas. Some of them have been here for, you know, a decade. Now, these people are already living among us. Many of them have been here for so many years that we're seeing how dire the situation is in Afghanistan. Surely there's more pressure on the government to offer permanent residency to, to these people, given they can't go home anytime soon or maybe ever. I mean, if they're allowing pathways to citizenship for agricultural visa holders, as they've announced, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I had two backbenchers this week. I had Andrew Bragg and Jason Falinski saying, yeah, we should let them stay. <laughs> so, yeah, but but yeah. the PM's doing the sort of tough border, you know, they came by boat so they can't. Is that, is that a bit tone deaf right now? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it is. I, I suspect in the, in the broader population he's made a political calculation that, um, you know, overall Australians uh, support the tough border policy that, you know, the Prime Minister himself is the sort of the, the prince of the, the boat turnbacks and the, the, the toughness of our border control system. He was the one who, you know, introduced, um, uh, you know, that there'd be no comment on on-water matters and he was the one who... Uh, sort of militarise the process in a sense with the Australian border force. So it's been very politically popular for Morrison. It's firm ground for him. It's sort of like a safe space for him. 
Um, and also it's just been politically popular for the Conservative governments, you know, that we've had over the last 10 years since Howard and, and the Labor governments as well. I mean, Rudd did this too. Um, so politically, I think they probably won't lose a lot of skin over it. That's not to say that it's not really inhumane. And, you know, there's sort of this pretense that, that, our, that our borders and that our immigration system is orderly and it's, you know, it's all done according to... Um, you know, a very transparent, consistent process. Well, actually, historically, we make all sorts of exceptions and we make all sorts of calls about who is needier at any one moment in time. And we've seen that with, you know, the people that we uh, evacuated from Vietnam. Very, you know, Tony Abbott, of course, um, took an extra in intake of Syrian refugees during the war in that country. We do make exceptions. We do, you know, push people to the front of the queue based on their circumstances and the circumstances in their home country. So if, if there's ever a case for, you know, a humanitarian exception to be made, then surely, surely that's now. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, look, it, it's pretty dreadful. I, I, I think anyone looking at those scenes in, in Afghanistan, um, you know, w would have to feel an enormous amount of compassion and just yeah. distress at, at, at what they're seeing. And it's yeah, it puts everything into perspective. Yeah, it's an yeah. excruciating coincidence that um, that parade of people desperate to try and get out and escape Afghanistan and get safe haven in another country, including Australia. Um, we're recording this on the 20th anniversary of the uh, arrival into Australian waters of the MV Tampa when they rescued a boatload of people with more than 300 souls on board, most of whom were Afghans, most of whom had started their journey some months before via Indonesia to escape the Taliban. So, you know, here mm -hmm. it is, they watch on now those people, people who some of them spent years as part of Australia's offshore processing pretty cruel offshore processing policy, it must be said, uh, on Nauru. Um, and, um, you know, now they watch on as it's all unfolding again. And the Tampa, of course, that was the incident that rewrote Australia's offshore or Australia's refugee policy. It's when we first heard of boat turnbacks and the Pacific solution. And, um, you know, yeah. here we are yeah. having this discussion again. Jacqueline, it's been fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. See you, Jackie. Thanks, guys. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Dom, who writes, we've seen another IPCC report come in and another mediocre Australian government response. I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling incredibly frustrated about this. What are the top three blockages standing in the way of climate change in Australia? And what are the best things we as citizens and voters can do to start to break down the blockages apart from not vote for major parties? Well, Dom, I don't know about the top three blockages, but I think it starts with the coalition party room. I mean, that's what's done in, um, you know, Malcolm Turnbull over this. He got voted out by his party room because he wanted to go further on emissions cuts than the LNP, that the Liberal and National Parties were prepared to do. I think that is still what's slowing down Scott Morrison. I mean, he's the one under international pressure to get Australia to have more ambitious climate uh, emissions reductions targets, particularly um, commit to that net zero by 2050. Uh, the Prime Minister is going to head to Glasgow or attend that Glasgow UN summit in November. He will need 
uh, some more to take there, to offer there on Australia's part. But he has to get that through the coalition party room. And uh, he's, he's, he's massaging them. He's moving there bit by bit. He's implying it. Um, but he's not there yet, which gives you an indication of how tough it is to get that stuff through the party room. Scott Morrison doesn't want to go the way of Malcolm Turnbull and lose his leadership over this. So I think that's the number one hurdle, really, is the coalition party room. What can citizens and voters do about that? Well, I suppose they can do the normal thing, which is uh, lobby their local member, particularly if you support climate change and your local member is one of those who doesn't want tougher emissions. You should work hard on that. Um, Also, you say, apart from not vote for the major parties, well... We have seen an indication that, you know, threatening to not vote for a party makes a difference. Remember the Wetworth by-election. Karen Phelps got elected after Malcolm Turnbull quit in, in a surprise, really. That's a blue-ribbon Liberal seat. She ran heavily on the issue of climate. We saw Scott Morrison during that come in with some more ambition over emissions cuts and, and um, emissions policy. Um, Karen Phelps got elected and then, was, you know, was lost it again at the next general election But Scott Morrison had to make some more promises there and change his narrative a bit around climate at that time. So I know there are, you know, a lot of people looking at trying to find the strong independence in a number of seats around this issue of climate. You know, Wentworth is one people are looking at, North Sydney, McKellar, and there's others across the country. So, you know, that is a a movement, I think, that is happening. Whether it materialises or not, I don't know. But what can you do? Well, mostly it's electoral. Yeah, it always is. And as we were mentioning earlier, you know, Labor's potent line, he only had two jobs, the Prime Minister, quarantine and vaccination. Well, I would add, well, there's lots of jobs, as we're saying, but but climate change is a key one too in dealing with the climate wars and trying to end them and provide an answer and a good contribution from our own country, given, you know, what the IPCC report predicts, which is catastrophic. All right, well, that's it. Send your questions in because we, we do love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us on the ABC Listen app or, of course, on your favourite podcast app. Well, that's it for The Party Room this week. Thank you for tolerating some sounds of children and also Bindi. And also Bindi the dog. Meanwhile, Buster the dog, so well behaved. See you, PK. See you, friend. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.